This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. They tell over a story from the Briskarov, uh, I guess it's not a story, but as much as an expression of his, that he once saw somebody with a very long beard. And the Rav described it was long and long and long. And finally at the end, there's a little piece after that also. Um, I guess we had said last week we would conclude the Amuna things. Um, there are two pieces of beard I wanted to add to that. Um, one is an article I came across this Thursday in the New York Times, and I really thought that it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary article, and I wanted to share it because it, it brings home so many points you made. And the second thing was a little more about the, the trust in Torah Shabbat Peh and so on, um, which I felt we hadn't done yet quite. We had explained what Torah Shabbat Peh was, but so to speak, confirming the validity of what we have and so on, I wanted to add that also. Okay. Um, the uh, article is in the New York Times on Thursday, August 6, 2009. It is called Spleen. And finally, the Spleen gets some respect by Natalie Anguier. Now this article is the um, it's was printed originally it's based on an article in Science, which is the journal Science is the premier scientific journal in America. Um, it is anything of value published there. This is the premier article, uh, a premier uh, journal. Um, it is um, the showcase, and this is was written by researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, as good as you can get. Now, yes? Huh? Yeah. The article is going to, basically, it's, it's built on the following um, point. The um, spleen is an organ in the body. For those you are not familiar, it's a kind of spongy-like material full of blood vessels. It doesn't really seem to have all that much to do. And the only thing it does do is it causes trouble. It, if, God forbid, if somebody has an accident and the spleen gets ruptured, it's bleeds profusely. You can bleed to death from a ruptured spleen. And what they do to emergency surgery, they operate and remove it, and you feel as good as you ever did. Um, maybe like a half a pound lighter. But other than that, there's nothing, no bad side effect. Which led um, intelligent people to conclude that it is a completely uh, extra organ. Really, really might have had some sort of function at some point in the past, but Bismana um, Zet's no longer, so why is it here? It's a vestige, and this is one of the few organs, one of the few pieces in the body that um, you can, that seem to point towards evolution. It's extra, it has no use. A god wouldn't have dumped it in an extra organ. Um, it, it, so what obviously was once upon a time needed. It wasn't a bad enough organ so that it got weeded out for evolution, and that's what it stayed. That's the premise. It's one of the proofs. There are two or three others. The appendix, the other obvious one, and then there's a bottom bone in the spine, which is uh, a zecher of a tail, and that is um, also kind of unnecessary. How do you prove something's unnecessary? It's very simple. Or cut open, take out. Nobody's ever died when they take out his appendix. Um, people have died, but not because the appendix was taken out. Uh, same with the spleen. No one's ever died. People live very happily ever after, so on and so forth. That is the um, premise, and it's always been kind of a proof for it. In this report, 
it says they all of a sudden re um, discovered that the spleen is a reservoir for huge numbers of immune cells called monocytes. And in the event of a serious trauma to the body, like a heart attack, gashing wound, or microbial invasion, the spleen will disgorge those monocytes into the bloodstream to tackle the crisis. And Dr. Narendorf, a researcher from uh, Harvard Medical School, says it's like a reserve army in, 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 a, in a society. You don't want to have, you can't have an army um, on the battlef battlefield strength army all the time. So you have a reserve army where you can call it up whenever you need it. That's what it is. Researchers, um, that researchers are only now discovering a major feature of a rather large organ they've been studying for at least 2,000 years demonstrates yet again that there's nothing so foreign as the place you call home. Um, the, um, Dr. Norendorf said, the more you learn, the more you realize that we're just scratching on the surface of life. We don't know the whole story about anything. He then um, said, they always thought that these cells came from the bone marrow, these uh, monocytes, and now they realize that it comes from the spleen, and it re they have to reevaluate the entire um, the entire understanding of how the uh, immune reaction works. The latest work also sounds a cautionary note against underestimating a body part or dismissing it as vestigial, expendable, or past its prime. In other words, um, we don't dismiss something as being a vestige because you don't know what it is. Um, let's see if there's anything else. There's another quote. Researchers cite other cases in which organs were presumed to be so dispensable that they could be removed prophylactically, meaning there are other organs that they don't really contribute much to the body, we don't think they contribute anything, and therefore just take them out. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, tonsils were considered to be uh, just extras, and as soon as I had a cold, myself included, um, tonsils came out, no, no problems. Uh, I was six years old, I had colds and had a tonsil operation. It was considered almost like a bris you, you went through it, always. Um, then he gives another example. In recent years, for example, many women undergoing hysterectomies, which means you remove the uterus, have been advised to have their healthy ovaries also removed because what's the point of it? It's an extra organ. Yet follow-up surveys have shown that women underwent elective ovaryectomy, had a heightened risk of dying during a given study period, were more susceptible to heart disease and lung cancer, and were twice as likely to develop Parkinson's disease compared with women who had kept the ovaries. So there's an, a, a very, very interesting point here. A, we know very little. One has to be very careful for making uh, any type of claims about vestiges. And this, we take us back to a very central point in the reasoning. Laura Inu Enoraya, when science says we have not discovered any um, role for the appendix, that statement is not a definite statement. All it says is they have not discovered. You can't turn that statement logically into saying, and therefore it has no role. And, and, and we do it time and again. We say, well, the best scientists have been studying this for dozens of years and have not found anything. We take out the, the appendix from people and they live happily ever after. 
Well, guess what? They did the same with the spleen. They did the same with the ovary. The ovary makes even less sense. An ovary has a very specific role. And yes, a woman cannot have babies. It's just not an ovary. But what other than that? And all of a sudden they discover things that are a lot more complex about it. Um, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's This is 2009, and it's just another example that when science discovers a thing, a fact, that's provable, repeatable, it's a fact. We have to live with it and see it as such. But when scientists make an evaluation, it's an evaluation. And uh, much of what's not known, like he says here, this is, this, we're talking about the top research, we're not talking about crackpots, we're not talking about from people, we're talking about real scientists. And they say that um, we've just scratched the surface understanding the complexity of the organs. There's one more sentence here that really, really is interesting. Um, a thing like this leaves a person to heighten the Muna. And this is no exception. Dr. Narendorf says, evolution has an edge on us. I would be very careful about saying you don't need this organ, get rid of it. So the name of the God is evolution, who's planned the body so carefully that chas v'shalom, one should possibly say that there is anything extra. Evolution works so perfectly that it doesn't leave any vestiges. So um, I, 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 the logic works well on both sides. If one finds vestiges, it's a clear proof of evolution. Evolution is not perfect. It's a, process, it's a process. You know, and a, a natural process has its, its little glitches. And when we find the perfection in the human body, it helps us give a, an added reverence for evolution, seeing about how perfect evolution is. That's an article I really felt I wanted to share with everybody. Um, by the way, the statistics were that um, for people who had heart attacks, the, um, the people without a spleen were, I believe, twice as likely to die from a heart attack as people without it. I, I don't have this I, somewhere within it, but what they do is they actually they come in very quickly, these cells, and fix it up, take away the dead cells, etc., etc. Okay, that's one thing I just wanted to share. I felt it was something I'd seen. It made a tremendous impression on me. And um, it, it's just good to know, it, because logically this was waiting in the wings. When you say a statement, I have not found the word that needs to be added is yet. We have no idea, impossibility from not finding uh, people who are familiar with math. Know that in math, um, where reasoning has to be very rigid, people have, um, have, have done certain calculations time and again, but, and they've found that you cannot get a whole number to fit this. You cannot get to that. But that never counts as proof for impossibility. A proof of ability means a definitive proof that it cannot be. But um, we have not found any number that fits this. We have not found tons and tons of, um, of riddles in math. We had intuitive feeling about it, and we knew that it should be like that, but it waited for definitive proof. So I, I just felt this article was much alarming. That's one point I wanted to bring out. A second point was about Torah Shabbat Peh that I felt needed to be rounded out. It's a point confirming sort of the solidity of Torah Shabbat Peh. Let's start with a derision of Torah Shabbat Peh. Yes, we have an oral law. Have you ever played a game of telephone? And a teacher in a classroom gets up and he tells, um, and, he, and, he, and he has everybody whispering something to everybody else. He, so he starts with, 
the first student in the class, and, uh, and then um, he, he whispers something in his ear, and, the, um, and then the last student, the 45th, everybody whispers the first to the second, the second to the third, third to the fourth, and finally the 50th one um, announces in front of the class what he heard from the 49th guy. Inevitably, it is very, very funny. You start with apple, you end with elephants dancing on the moon. It's, it's a very, very funny, funny thing. And then Dramatica says, well, this has happened in five minutes with 50 people. Imagine if you're transmitting this 3,000 years ago to what you're saying, and you're talking about hundreds of people in transmission, or whatever it is, uh, um, minimum 150, 170, I think, works out too. So how accurate do you think you got? That has been sort of a derision about Torah about and so on. First of all, um, so, so first of all, let, let's just debunk the whole, um, the, the, that whole little show. It's, it's like every little show, it's very cute, but it has nothing to do with the reality. He's talking about people whispering to each other, things that they perceive to be nonsense, and that's it. We're talking about people sitting their entire lives, being all sick and Torah, debating it with hundreds of other people, again and again and again and again, cross-firing, proving, debating, and so on and so forth. We do not claim in Torah Shabbat Ped necessarily that the words stay the same as Torah Shabbat but that the content and the Ruach stay the same that we do claim. And we, and we will try to confirm it. But the thing that's very important to remember is um, it has nothing to do with a stupid game like that. If you walk in, you're not talking about people whispering in each other's ears. You're talking about a whole bunch of people arguing a point. You're talking about a constant reference back to, to, to a Torah Shabbat Shabbat. You're talking about a dead serious enterprise as opposed to some stupid parlor game with a bunch of high school kids and so on. Somebody once um, told over, and I'll, I'll take his word for it, the, um, he did the same experiment at an NCSY convention and got the same rubbish as, you know, as the answer. He then changed the rules a bit. And he, he had four lines of 20 people and um, he promised, he took out $100 bills or $400 bills, promised each group that got it right $5 to each person. And three of the four groups got it perfectly right, and the fourth group got it nearly right. And again, you're talking about a bunch of kids on a vacation, and $5 made all the difference between if they were horsing around or they paid a lot, a lot of attention. So um, bear that in mind as far as that. But let's take a different thing. A person walks into a Yemenite synagogue and looks around, and he observes it. And then he walks into a Chassidish Shtibel in Poland, before you know, then he walks into a German um, shul, uh, a, 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 and he sits there and observes that. He then goes to America and looks at a modern Orthodox synagogue. He then goes to a Sfari place in Morocco. If he was an anthropologist he would conclude that you're talking about five very different religions with some common background. Um, but everything is extremely different. The tone of music, the dress, the decor of the synagogue. The Yemenites are sitting on the floor, the Chassidim are running all over the place, the Germans are sitting like 
mummies in their, in their wooden pews. Modern Orthodox synagogue has an auditorium feel, and the, 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 the type of music and so on is very different. And these are five very different religions. If anything, uh, uh, um, an intelligent anthropologist would say, the German synagogue has more in common with a cathedral in Germany than it does with the shul in Yemen. And the Yemenite shul, with tone and the music and all that, has more in common possibly with the mosque over there than it has with the Chassidish Shtibel. Chassidish Shtibel is talking about what it has in common with. We, could not, we cannot really find another religion to make it, you know, to kind of uh, identify with, but and even Chassidim itself, one would, one would go to a Litvish Chassidim, such as Lubavitch, or, and see people kind of very, very stiff, and you go to a place where, like uh, Karlin, which is also actually a Litvish Chassidim, and people are screaming and yelling, and once again you conclude the difference are radical. Um, a person would, um, and so on, in, in, in the, what they serve Friday night would be very different in each place, the foods they eat and so on. Now, let's take, let's put on our halachic glasses and let us make a list of what's important what's not important. So, somebody asked me what tefillah is. Okay, tefillah is Shmeine Esra, preceded by Kriyashma Uberchoseha, of which one bracha deals with Yotzeror, with Oros, one bracha deals with Torah, one bracha deals with Tzias Mitzrayim. Those are the foundations of um, the Rabban Harum Takne. Um, the, 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 the food that one, the halachos of Shabbos is, you can, you're supposed to eat warm food, you're not supposed to heat it up, you're not supposed to cook it on Shabbos, etc. And a person was to walk into those shuls and he would say halachically, they are identical. Um, it doesn't say anyway what type of tune, and, and the mela, it ran off in its own direction. Doesn't say anywhere what type of lavush. There's a longer lavush, it says covered, it says yocha, if not. But other than that, um, whatever you want, you can wear. Um, doesn't say anything about the, the, the core and how to sit and so on. It says to, to sit very respectfully, but other than that, there's nothing about it. But it does say shmonesa. Everybody's got shmonesa with 18 brachas and a 19th bracha. Everyone's, all the shining is chos and tefillah are absolutely meaningless in halacha. The chaznish said, there are only two differences in this Hashem's Hasfarad, meaning in halacha. And the, 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 whether you finish um, uh, in Makadosh Shmoy Berabim in La'olem Yodam, whether you finish with a brocha or not, that result said not, we say yes. That's a halachic difference. And one other thing, I don't remember what. But, but in, there is no difference. Um, not one community in the world ever. I'm talking about communities that have been cut off for centuries. Yemen was cut off for centuries and centuries, maybe millennium. A lulav and an esrog are very clearly, um, no one ever debated what an esrog is. The Torah doesn't say what an esrog is. The Torah says a beautiful fruit. Nobody brought a mango in. Nobody brought in a passion fruit. Everyone brings in an esrog is an esrog. An esrog come in different forms, but they're esrogim. And lulavim or lulavim, and, and, and hadasim hadasim, and arabis arabis, all across. Shechita is the same shechita we have. There are, there are all sorts of little things that people kill each other for. Yes, should you use a knife that's been sanded down, not sanded down, whatever the big machlokes, you see them, uh, they, they, we, we don't know today even what it is, whatever that, there was a big fight about it. 
um, but but in halacha that that has no uh, real ramifications. It has ramifications of it's better, it's 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 this, it's that. Um, it, mikvah. What does a mikvah look like? Um, across the board, on on the first three tiers of nafkimin in halacha, it's exactly the same. Um, the, the, the differences are all minor points about a minor point. Um, no real fundamental machlokas in observance. Um, no one in the Gemara, you don't find the old alternative sheets that the Gemara doesn't pass on, like adapted anywhere or, or, t- or taken anywhere. So we've been able to keep a Torah Shabal Peh intact for um, what is 2,000 years. We have communities like Teiman, which definitely go back to thousand. they claim even more, I don't know. And yes, there's been some cross-fertilization, but no one's ever recorded examples of very different Hanhagas that are Mikra did. You have travelers like Binyamin Toledo and, um, and, and others who traveled and they recorded everything interesting they found and all those interesting things are all Minhagim. Where they are encoded was kept as a special room and you have to walk in one place, walk out another place. And people would eat Friday night a big meal before they went to shul. Then they come back from shul and just make kiddush and go to s- and eat something small and go to sleep. Uh, you know, those are, there are a, a riot of all sorts of interesting minhagim, but nothing of real of any real halachic difference. So we've been able to keep and, and, and don't forget we're talking about communities that were isolated. I, I mean, today in, we, there's nothing isolated anymore. But a hundred years ago, to writing a letter someplace took weeks, and sometimes it got there, sometimes it didn't get there. And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago when, when there was no communication whatsoever and it kept. So we were able to keep it for 2,000 years. Doesn't that say something about our consistency and how strong we kept it? Josephus is before the Chorban. He's a non-rabbinic source. He quotes, he explains the quotes extensively about Jews and Allah has been hugging. There are mistakes in it which taking into account that Josephus was a kind of um, for a better word, we'll call him a Hellenized Jew, um, even though he claimed he was from the Prussian, but he, he definitely was very Roman and not connected to mainstream. He was not a Tamchachim in such generation. But the Medrashim and the Chazals and, and the Halachis are all what we're familiar with. He makes mistakes. Yes, there's a list of a dozen mistakes that's clear that he was no Tamchachim. But the mistakes are not way out. They're whether Tamir or Tor, you know. But, but, but the points are the same. So if we've been able to keep it for 2,200 years <coughs> under circumstances that were very, very difficult, it shows A, it can be done well. Even if you look at Sfarim, no one in a base Medrash has trouble picking up a safer from any corner of the earth from any time period and feel that this is strange, different, or um, just not Shaykh. You pick up a Tshuva Sefer written anywhere, anytime. It's, it's part of, it, it integrates seamlessly in a Tshuva Sarajba written in Spain, uh, a Tshuva written in, in, in Yemen, um, Babylonian things. All of it is to us very, very much the same. It falls along common sheetas in Rishonim. Not much um, of all the firms we've ever been able to uncover, we have not uncovered anything that is um, different. There are machlokas and shitas within what one, cons- what one would consider normative halacha. 
And this is, even taking into account there is a weariness about touching the Shonim that we don't know who they are, because they may have been Amorites who just had money and could sit and write. But there hasn't been found anything that's different in spirit that, that, we, that we don't feel comfortable with. So if we know that for 2,000 years we did keep it uh, intact under the most difficult conditions, under no, you have to write everything by hand and so on and so forth, there's no reason to think that the next, the thousand years before that was any different. That is one of the most powerful proofs there are. So people come along and say, well, what about the Karaite Mesaurus? Um, don't they have a different Mesaurus where they're against Toshua and so on? And the answer is very simple. We also have reform. We're not talking about somebody gets up and makes a conscious decision to change, to, 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 to cut what was and, uh, and, and start anew. Uh, reform was a, a decision. It wasn't somebody had a Mesaurus that was different and said, why Mesaurus is better than your People got up and said, we think the whole thing is junk, um, wrong, let's discard it. Yeah, that, that, that you had all the time. The same thing was true about the Karaites. Karaites were not a Mesaurus. The carrots was started by somebody very specific. They, had, they claim who started it. Um, he got up and said, Rabbi Isai, there's no such thing as Torah Shabbat Everybody should go and do and interpret the Torah as they see fit. Um, so first of all, um, he has no historical tradition to go back on. It's his decision. It's compounded by the fact that there was a political reason for that decision. He was passed over. His father was the Gaon. They passed him over for younger brother. He was a little bit upset, and that's why he dumped it. Um, so, so, so historically, there is no alternative. Um, the the um, Stukim did not have alternative um, beliefs. They had they discarded beliefs, and it was very clear that it was coming from the the the, the Stukim were Hellenized people, and once again, it was very clear that the rejection of Torah Shabbat was coming not out of an inner conviction of not wanting Torah Shabbat, of, of, of saying internally this is wrong, but rather they were kind of what we would say modern worldly people, did not like to be encumbered with a lot of halachas and so on, and discarded it. So yes, in history you've had tons and tons of people discarding halacha, that, that, and Mesorahs, that happens. But there is no alternative Mesorahs. People also, so, so, so in my mind, this is one of those powerful points that there is about the integrity of Torah Shabbat um, that, that, that it's been kept always, all the time, so on and so forth. The um, people come along, and I've heard this point again and again, well, why is there so much argument? All the rabbis disagree, and that's what makes Torah so unappetizing, and people don't like it because one rabbi says you can eat potato chips on, on Pesach and one rabbi says you can't and one rabbi says maybe you can and one rabbi says this and all the rabbis can't agree and that fragmentation is a tremendous uh, degradation of Torah. Why can't the rabbis get together and agree on something and so on and so forth? Um, that Taina it was actually Ben-Gurion tried to organize a Sanhedrin and the Gedoli Yisrael almost across the board vehemently were against it Besides the obvious reason that, that it's presumptuous to think we have 120 people today that would count as uh, Dayan and so on and so forth, 
um, the one good thing that remained from the whole thing was one of the sharpest remarks. There was a person named Rabbi Maimon, Fishman, Fishman Maimon, who was a, was a very, very avid fan of it. He wanted it. He was a very Mizrahi type of person. I think it was sort of part of the vision of Geula. And someone asked him, Rabbi Maimon, okay, let's say we can get Tamir Chachamim today that was fit for Sanhedrin. And let's say we can get Yerei Shemayim, but it's a Sony Betza. Where are we ever going to find Sony Betza today? And he answered, if you pay enough money, you can get Sony Betza also. That was, one of the better, that was one of the good lines that came out of the whole thing, but nothing more. But when they asked the Gedolim, I don't remember it was a Chasnish, they asked him, why, do, why is he against it? And why does he says, I, I'd like to try to understand, he says, is Ben-Gurion really interested in getting a Sanhedrin together to give Skila Bismanaza? Or to get rid of a lot of mitzvahs? I mean, is, is it really the restoration of Torah and we start giving people skila for Chil Shabbos? Is, is that like what he's interested in? Or, or is he interested in, because the only way we have of, of undoing Takanis is through Sanhedrin. Um, but at any rate, the, 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 the point has always been, I've been asked this time and again, there would be people like Nesha Torah and, and their parents would come and they would say, you know, this is one thing that keeps on keeping the Torah. I mean, the, the, the reply usually used to be, okay, so how about starting by keeping all the mitzvahs that all the rabbis agree upon? That was uh, always the counterpoint. But let's forget about that. That's cute and it's very nice. But I, I want to go to a different point. In a certain sense, the tremendous diversity and sometimes the vehement, vehement arguments, if you look at some of the tshuvas for the, 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 the accusation of fight back and forth are horrific. I would um, refer you to I just <laughs> the Malbach and the Marie Beirav when you argue about the smicha. I mean, they, 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 your ears singe just looking at, 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 the, at, the, at, at the invective. Very, very, very vehement arguments was actually about, about making Sahedra and smicha. But there's a flip side to it. But all of those people arguing so vehemently agreed to the fundamental principles. The arguments were always how to project it, how to extrapolate it to a later point, and how to understand that was said. No one ever came along and says this whole section is not. The argument, the argumentative nature of the Rabbanan in the Gemara, in the Talmud, and of all of the Mepharshim afterwards, being that we don't have a Sanhedrin, in a certain sense, assures the integrity of Torah. It tells us, well, dal mehachi, all of those arguments. Let's remove, but there's a core that no one argued with. And these were people that were very argumentative and were ready to pounce at any point that they felt was wrong. And there was never any argument about the, the, the basics, nothing. Um, it was always about extrapolating it. Um, the occasionally, there'd be a question of how to paskin the Gemara. What, I, what is the Gemara's conclusion? Which sugi do we favor? Which sugi? And the Gemara doesn't have a clear psat. But no one ever, no one ever contested the right for the Gemara to paskin. That once the Gemara did pass, the Gemara did pass, there's no going back on it. No one ever contested the basic rules. There would be a question if you have a spirit into rules, how to build up an argument. But never ever any argument ab- uh, about anything else. So if you have all of these people not agreeing in unison, if this would be like a very docile choir group kind of, everybody says, yes, amen, bless the Lord, and so on, and we'd say, okay, you know, they're, they're zombies. They, they, every person held his own uh, really, really strongly and, and, and um, argued every last point vehemently. 
And yet, there's a tremendous corpus of material that everybody agrees upon. It does, um, it does, uh, it does confirm very strongly for us the integrity of Torah. A, because of just the fact that we have all this evidence on, and B, if anybody were to come along and try to pass off a new Torah, he would get tremendous arguments. Um, and this, that's another, uh, that's another uh, line of defense for the integrity of Torah. Uh, historians go back, and they always blame the firm community for being Kanoi. For instance, let's just take the Ramchal. The Ramchal, we know, is a great person. Anyone who knows a little bit of history knows that he was ex- excommunicated, driven from his country, had his farm burned, banned, etc., etc. And historians write about mean-spirited and da 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 But, one second, any time somebody tried to bring in something that was new, the burden of proof, big time, was on him. Um, Hasidus met with a tremendous isnagdus because it was different, it was new. And, and you, had to, you had to answer those arguments in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of Rabbanim, and so on. The Kabbalah, the people involved in Kabbalah were, in many places, they, they were against them. And, the, and I tell people, the, the only reason why, the reason why the Arizal is so accepted is because of the fact that the Arizal lived in, in, in one of the great centers of Yiddishkeit in a very, very, um, in, 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 a, in a tkufa, when you had Kol Dolisol living in Tzfas. He was a young man. He got up and said, uh, said a new Torah, uh, another dimension of Torah. Now, then it didn't change halachas, but, but the new dimension of Torah coming straight from Eliyahu. And nobody, and everybody sat in rapt attention and said, you know, uh, he's Emerson, his Torah is Emerson. That's the only reason we'd ever accept that result, or else we would take his farm and put him in Geniza. The, the Ramchal did not have that stature, and that's why a lot of his farm were put in Geniza. And even today, when we use Ramchal's farm so much, there's farm that we say, we don't know. We draw a line and say, we don't know how to digest his farm, um, he was a great man, but this farm are not for circulation. The Rizal had the Beisos, the Shulch Aruch sat at his feet in, in, in the Anum of Kabbalah as, as, as a, an, an Evid Kavimari. The Ramak, Ramayusha Kodavira, who was the doyen of Kabbalah's till his time, the Ramak was the great Mekobal who summed up the Kabbalah Rishonim, was older than the Rizal, and was being surpassed. The Rizal's Kabbalah was going a whole new step further, and the Ramak bowed his head to him, acknowledged him. That's the only reason why we accept the Rizal for what he is. Um, the peer review was very powerful. And um, anything that w- was not un- un- unanimously accepted, um, we take with caution. Uh, one of the reasons why, uh, again, I don't want to go into politics, I don't want to go into specifics, but one of the reasons why Breslov is treated with such um, suspicion is not the Misnagdim were against Breslov, the Chassidim themselves, his contemporary rabbis, almost all were very vehemently opposed to it. Not even clear why, because they were so vehement, they didn't want to discuss it, but he had vehement opposition from his real peers. So it leaves you to be question mark. Yes, maybe it was so much bigger than understand him, it's possible. But on the other hand, we don't have the certainty of, of that Askama. 
Um, we, we're very, very weary of taking on any new Torah. It rightfully um, engenders um, opposition. Uh, Torah is, is the transmission of what we have, the development of what we have. Even Reb Chaim Briska, who every we accept today as being Torah as the came from Sinai, had misnagdim. If you'll take a look, the Ritvaz, who was a brilliant contemporary of his, called Reb Chaim Brisker an alchemist. He said he's, he's not taking gold and fashioning into a necklace. He's dropping a piece of lead into a vat, and presto, he tells us gold appears. I'm, I'm weary of people who pull out gold from, like, hey, where are you coming from? It's very different than the sheet that we had before. It's very different than that we had before. And um, it's suspect. And, and, it, and it is to Reb Chaim's credit that not only was, was it a really new development in Torah, within Torah, but it was accepted by so many um, who weren't that sheet in Derek Dafka. His contemporaries didn't... Reb Chaim was, was highly, highly original, and yet everyone felt that this is an emiss within Torah. His peer review is what allows us to take it comfortably and say it might look different, but the people understood, understood the nuances of what was, and him said this is just the next step in what's laying inside the old Torah already. So the, 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 the natural hisnagdus of Christ, and that's why when people, when people um, have problems that the Rabbanim react rather than being proactive, they always seem to be two steps behind, etc., 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 and a lot of issues. Um, th there are two, and there may be some we, we would discuss in some later things, but just for our, th for our um, sake, the um, Torah can never be innovative. You can't graft a new branch on it. You can re-examine and find something within it. Uh, for instance, Reb Shamsha Fall Hirsch, even though also it was, it was very different, the, the style, the approach, everything than before, was held in extremely high regard by his Hungarian and Polish contemporaries, because even though he spoke a new language, there was a sense it's another translation of the Ayim Lashonos of Torah. It was not the same with all the other reformers, other people, where the feeling was this is a grafting of a new thing into the tree of Torah, and the tree rejects the grafts. Um, it's a close call. Uh, very hard to tell sometimes whether a branch growing out, a new branch growing out, somebody grafted it in, or it's a natural development of a deeper gene within it. But the, 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 the fact that many people, the fact that the natural instinct is to reject foreign elements helps, um, helps uh, convince us of the integrity of that which was. So basically, just to wrap up the point, it, it, I was trying to, um, to, to put down a, um, a, a, a confirmation, so to speak, um, of Torah Shabbat integrity. Um, one is that we do not find any variants of Torah Shabbat anywhere in the world at any time, except for occasionally, um, uh, you know, a sinful thing. Yes, people started driving cars on Shabbos in America. But we will not call that the base of Torah People just reject it was there. But in, in, in interpreting the halachas zilch in anything that's important, major, or whatever, um, we also have a natural tendency to resist ferociously anything 
that seems to be new, which helps us assure that that which we have is still part and parcel of the, of, of the Torah that we have. And um, th- th- those are things that help convince us that Torah Shaval Peh is the, the same understanding of the mitzvahs that we have today was the understanding of Moshe got from Sinai. Okay? Okay, good.